You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2023 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dear Father in Heaven, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and contemplate how we can respond to your call for laborers. Thank you for what you're doing to make it easy for us to reach the world in this generation. It's such a privilege to have a part in your great work. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I see a few new faces today, and um, so I'll just introduce myself. Welcome. I'm Terry Saley. I coordinate Refugee and Immigrant Ministries for the North American Division. And uh, someone asked me a few years ago what I'd like to be doing in 10 years. And I said, I can't think of anything in the world I'd rather do than what I'm doing right now, except that I just want to be more efficient and effective. Um, refugees are wonderful to work with. And um, I would love to give you uh, the background, of, but you can probably listen, listen to the other presentations. But just briefly... Do you have an idea of how many, so we're, we're to reach every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, right? Do you have an idea of where we are in that? How many nations have we reached? Well, you're real close. Actually, I don't know the percentage, but it's 315 out of 330, I'm sorry, 215 out of the 239 nations and areas recognized by the United Nations. So you're real close, yes. So that's nations. Praise the Lord, we're <laughs> doing well. And next is kindred. And do you have any idea how many kindred we're reaching? Or do you, right? I was not able to find any research in the English language on how many kindred we are reaching, because in Western culture, we hardly know what that means. What are they referring to as kindred, right? But in many cultures, kindred or last name, family name, extended family, tribe, is very important. And, um, you know, we kind of, if we hear the word tribalism, we have a negative feeling, but there's a lot of positive in, uh, and, and for my husband's language group, he is Hmong, and initially there were 12 tribes. What does that remind you of? <laughs> That's only one of many similarities with the Old Testament and the Jews. Um, love to unpack that. But in his culture, when they meet on the street or in the grocery line, they don't say, what's your name? Where do you live? Where do you go to school? Where do you work? It's which Hmong are you? Which kindred? Which kindred are you? Um, so even though I haven't discovered any thing in the English language in terms of research on how many kindred are reached or unreached, it's interesting to me that it was important enough to God to put it in the core of our mission statement. Amen? Well, I think kindred is family. I think, and Edda, thank you. I don't, I'll admit that I don't have a specific definition, but my understanding in the context of other cultures that I've worked with is that it it implies 
a family group, an extended family or a tribe. And, and I think it may not look the same in every culture. But um, in cultures where extended family is important and where they make a specific distinction between families or tribes, it could be synonymous with tribe in some cultures. Um, because, for example, in the Hmong culture, the tribe is based on the last name. So there are, there's Bang and Xiong and Li. And it's interesting that many pastors, they don't come from a Christian background in the recordable past. They don't have a universal written language even. Uh, there are 12 million in the world, 9 million live in China. The other 3 million were all in Southeast Asia until the Vietnam War, the secret war in Laos simultaneous with the Vietnam War. And if you're not aware of it, just Google secret war in Laos and you'll discover that Laos is the most bombed country in the world, uh, which is how the Hmong people ended up having to leave their homeland because they, they did their best to help our troops keep communism out of their country. And when the country eventually fell to communism, Many were killed. Those who could fled across the river with no intention of coming here. They just, uh, well, it's not safe there right now, but we'll, we'll get our country back. But finally, after years of just resisting resettlement, actually, <laughs> um, they finally realized, most realized that probably this is not going to happen in the foreseeable future. And those who were left in the refugee camps were forcibly deported back to their home country, even those who went voluntarily. I was working in refugee camps, and we had, I had students, Bible students, actually, who were really avidly studying the Bible. And they thought, you know, I don't know if there's ever going to be an option to go to a, a third country, not to be confused with third world country. So third country in refugee terms refers to the country of resettlement. So the, the the first country refugees flee to is called the country, the country of asylum. And then if they are resettled, intentionally welcomed, vetted and welcomed by a, another country, that's called the third country. So the U.S., Canada, and Australia are the primary re countries of resettlement. Um, but then there are also host countries that are that are just countries of asylum, but they end up carrying the heaviest burden. For example, the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, we, we welcomed very few Syrians, probably because of the political uh, rhetoric that was going on at that time. So the brunt of that burden is with the surrounding countries, Jordan and other countries there. But, um, yeah, there's, there's so much. So the, the Hmong eventually came, about 300,000 come in, came to North America. And, um, yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about them later. But it's interesting how significant kindred or tribe or family, extended family is to, ref to many refugee cultures and how 
difficult it is when they come to the States, when they're re those who are resettled here, uh, basically our, our system doesn't even take into consideration extended family. It's only the nuclear family. So I can think of one family, the grandparents were sent to Australia, the parents were, and their siblings were sent to various places in the United States. It's just, um, yeah. And they, they feel very separated and isolated. And in the refugee camps, if they become Christians, the conditions are terrible, but at least they're together. But then they come here, and then they're scattered far and wide. So one thing we can do as a church is help to bring them together. Uh, and church plants are a wonderful way to do that in helping them to connect division-wide. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to the summary of, I keep pointing up there because I, uh, let me just pull up that slide real quick because it's a lot easier this way. Okay, every, our mission in a nutshell is to reach every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And I haven't found any research on kindred, but there's a lot of research on how many languages have been reached. Very good. Yeah. 6,996 are unreached by the gospel. This was recent, and you may hear other numbers. It's a little, it's dependent somewhat on how, how you count them. Mm -hmm. So for example, there, there are Hmong, there are Hmong people in, most of them are in China. There are Hmong in Laos, Hmong in Thailand, Hmong in the United States, some in France. So it depends on whether you count, uh, grouping kind of within an area that they would naturally be reached or whether you count the language group as a whole globally and other things like that. So you may hear some variations, but as far as I know, this is the, the overall uh, number. And I wondered how many people were in these unreached language groups. Yes. 3.15 billion. Yes. When I first started, it was 2.9 billion in 2009, and it's already 3.15 billion people that are in those unreached language groups. So I wondered how many, if, on the average, how many unreached people would every Seventh-day Adventist need to reach, to reach the world in this generation? Yes, about 165, and you know, it fluctuates. Last year, our church membership grew by one million, amen? The world population grew by 75 million, so our job's not getting any easier. Welcome, welcome back. And as we, you might guess, these unreached people groups are in areas where they don't give missionary visas, few if any religious freedoms, the 1040 window. So how can we reach them? And I love, I believe when God asks us to do something, he points the way and provides the power, amen?
He has a way. He has a plan. And when I discovered this quote, I could not believe it was a game changer for me. Um, if we were quick in discerning the opening providences of God, we should be able to see in the multiplying opportunities to reach many foreigners in America a divinely appointed means of extending the third angel's message into all the nations of the earth. Even those that don't give missionary visas, even those where to proselytize, you could be given 48 hours to leave the country permanently. I've visited a country like that. Goes on to say, God in his providence has brought men to our very doors and thrust them, as it were, into our arms, that they may learn the truth and be qualified to do a work we could not do in getting the light before men of other tongues. It's incredible what God can do through people within the culture once they learn the message of God's love. To reach their own culture, because they already know the language, the culture, the they they can reach their own people in ways that we would never think of. Their illustrations are so much more effective among their own people when they share the gospel with their own people. But it's not limited to that. They also, many of these language groups also know about other language groups that we never heard of. And so we are now reaching some language groups that were barely reached overseas, and there's one that was not reached anywhere in the world before. This is the Falam language group. They're from Myanmar, former Burma. They were not reached anywhere in the world before. There was in there, there's a Falam city, and there was an Adventist church in Falam city, but it was a Miso-speaking church. But thankfully, a member of that church, who was a businessman, learned the language. He owned a school there, and he felt convicted to sell his school and go into ministry. So he sold his school, paid his own way through uh, study theology and MDiv at Spice uh, at um, in the Philippines, and he ended up getting a call from the Chesapeake Conference, heard about him and called him to pastor a Miso church there. And then we learned that he spoke Falam. So he is now our church planting consultant for the Falam language group. His name is on the paper that I <coughs> gave you. So it's so exciting. Here's another group that had just begun to be reached over in South Sudan, the newer language group. This was their first youth camp. They've had a couple more now, but they are just thrilled to be able to be getting together. The, the pastor who's... Actually, a, a missionary went over to reach this language group, and he had just started when war broke out. He had to come back, but there was one man who had learned the message and was... Had, become a pastor and started to work with him. And all of these people are re a result of that one man's work. He was a refugee himself, fleeing from place to place, but wherever he went, he would share the gospel. And so um, there are churches back there as a result of his work, and now 
scattered across the North American division, we have Noor people planting churches in the towns where they live. It's amazing how God works. That's kind of an overview of the refugee congregations in North America. But I would like to um, share with you I'm going to postpone that a little bit. So several people that I've, I've mentioned to you are now church planting consultants because back to this quote, it's, there's so much. <laughs> this, I'll just share. When we do God's work in God's way, by following this counsel that the people from within the culture can do a work we cannot do, the work has grown beyond my wildest imaginations in North America. Language groups that we're reaching have doubled from 9 to 18. Congregations have tripled. Membership has quadrupled. Annual baptisms have grown eightfold. And so has tithe. We are now reaching the Nepalese. This, this language group, the Nepalese-speaking Bhutanese, Refugees are the largest, most open, but least reached language group in North America, as far as I know. Um, and we are now, we now have a couple of congregations. This was the first one in Greensboro, North Carolina. And um, there are other language groups. But we, um, when that Quote says, the people from within the culture can do a work we cannot do. I began to realize, okay, I'm not necessarily the best missionary. I'm, I'm not. I think often as North Americans, we can tend to feel like we're the missionaries we're coming in to teach you, and we do have a lot to share. But if we, if we come in with the purpose of finding the influencers in the culture, and and if they don't know the, the message of God's love, share it with them. You know, if there's no one in the culture that knows it, the message of God's love, then prayerfully share it with them, and and then, but with an eye for helping them to be able to share it with their people. Um, but and I think. It's important to really be prayerful when you're going into a new culture because it's easy for us to just, there's a balance between um, just sharing it with whoever you happen to meet, which God can lead in amazing ways in helping you to meet the right people. At the same time, it's also important to look for the influencers and be intentional about who you share it with. You know, it's interesting how Jesus said, um, he was talking about the true shepherd, of course, which is Christ. Um, but he talks about the thief coming in to steal. And we've, we've heard about sheep stealing, and usually it's something we're accused of <laughs> when we share the the message with people of other denominations. Um, but it's interesting when we're working with cultures, especially 
those who uh, are focused on kindred. Each kindred or tribe has its leaders, and there's a principle that Ellen White uh, gives us regarding ministers of other churches. She says, our ministers should feel it's their special duty to reach out to other ministers, and she tells exactly how to do it. Come close to them, pray with and for them. And she said, if we were to do this, there would be many now preaching falsehoods that would be preaching the truth. And so if we do follow the same principle with other cultures, and we encourage, we go to the leaders and share, you know, come close to them, pray with them and for them, so that they know that we want their best good, then they can share the message with their people in a way that, that we couldn't. Um, my husband is Hmong from, uh, from Thailand, and he's, I've mentioned it in other classes, but he can come into a group of people. He likes to tell me the real leader may not be the one up front talking. The real leader may be the old man in the corner dressed in rags with half his teeth out. But when he says, go, everybody jumps. When he says, no, nobody moves. So when you find the real influencers, those are the people to, um, by God's grace, focus on either focus on yourself or maybe introduce them to your pastor or a leader, because often leaders respect other leaders, and so it's important to be prayerful about, Lord, this contact that I have, is this one you want me to reach out to directly? We, you can never go wrong making friends cross-culturally and really caring about people. And God can use that, whether that's the influencer or whether they introduce you to the influencer. Um, but I'd like to, I'd like to share a couple of, of videos. Um, one of the, one of the best ways to reach, one of the best ways to reach other cultures is through their children, especially if we're reaching cross-culturally. I still think about that day every day. Why was I the lucky one? I wanted to go with him to help him stay strong, to help keep him on the right track. We were both in the same boat, young, poor, and vulnerable. There's three students to you. Almost every crowd is the wrong crowd. Stay here alone too long, and you may never get out. We both knew that. The school is the only break we get, the only place where we can escape the streets, get real education, and hear about God. They see their scholarship for 10 kids. 10 kids like us will get the chance to go to a school. We applied as soon as we heard about it. Then all we could do was wait.
one of the one of the best things we can do for a culture is to give them an Adventist education. And because this was filmed in Atlanta, where there's a high rate of child trafficking among the refugees. Um, and tell you stories, for example, one, one young man was able, able to go to our school. His mother couldn't afford it, but uh, a woman by the name of Kelly Tchaikovsky found a way to get scholarships, and she, she got scholarships for some, but she couldn't get scholarships for all, and so she just raised funds, gave <laughs> um, funds herself, and one, one young man that they almost didn't let in because they thought, how can we afford it? How can we afford this many students? Um, when he was able to, to attend, his mother was in tears. She said, you I think it was when he graduated, she said, you she was in tears. She said, thank you. You saved my son from the games. There were, there were other children who had been, in fact, he was starting to get involved in the games, but just in the nick of time, he was able to attend our school. And she said, if, you had, if he had not been able to attend your school, he would be in the games. And so um, when we were church planning in Sacramento, there were, we, were, we had an amazing youth group. It was like 18 or 20 Lao young people. And they were so on fire for God, they wanted to work for God. But then we just noticed that one by one, they were just kind of disappearing. And we couldn't figure out what was happening. Then we realized that in every case, it was after they got into high school. It was So in middle school, they were fine. But once they got into high school, I don't know if it was probably a combination of being at that age where you're self-conscious, peers are so important, and also the career paths they were offered in public school, of course, didn't include pastoral ministry or theology. And that, so they would just, one by one, they just kind of disappeared, even though they had been so passionate about following God. And in, in our case, the parents, many of the some of the parents were new Adventists, some of the parents were Buddhists. And so just having one influence among the three main, the family, the school, and the church. We, we provided Bible studies and activities and took them to church, but the other two influences were not Christian. And we started to lose them one by one. We thought, okay, who's the next one that'll be at risk for this? And we noticed two. One young man was already starting to show a little, a few signs of kind of, uh, trying to fit in the way he dressed and acted and so forth. The other one, he was a ninth grader, and there was an eighth grader who we thought, okay, he'll be next. And so we, we prayed, we invited them to our little office in, <laughs> in the apartment. We had rented an apartment in the apartment complex with a lot of refugees. 
and we invited them to come and pray with us. And we said, you know, I believe God has a special work for you. And um, you need good preparation for that. So we invited them to, to attend one of our schools. And I, we said, we will help as much as we can. We can't fund all of it, but we believe that God will help. And I shared my testimony. When I was young, my father had an accident. We couldn't afford it, but God provided ways for me to attend our, our Adventist schools. So they went, and one young man now is married to a good friend of mine and is doing IT for, Adventist, for ADRA International in the general conference. The other one felt called to reach out to his people. And his mother, a Buddhist, was so disappointed that her son, it was bad enough that, she, that he was going to church, but when he decided to be a pastor, she didn't want him to be a poor pastor like my husband. <laughs> they wanted him to be a doctor, and they were working hard doing landscaping to provide money for him to eventually study to be a doctor, hopefully. Um, but after attending our academy, he could not shake the call to reach his own people. And the night before he was to register to study pastoral ministry, his mother attempted suicide. Wow, that was one very heavy-hearted young man. His family blamed him, and they they took the mother. He didn't even know where they took her. In fact, that's just a short video. Would you like to see it? Um, because his story is significant in several ways. To say that you are a Laotian, it's almost automatically you are a Buddhist. You basically grew up, born into and grew up in that culture. When we came to the U.S., our life was different. It's like we had to start all over again, especially for my parents. I didn't speak any English. I didn't know how to spell my name. It was difficult. And the only place that we were able to afford to stay in was a government uh, housing in West Sacramento, California. And that's where we were, that's where we started our lives in the U.S. Now, in the Laotian culture, um, parents and children have a very close relationship. The children has to be their social security. So because of, because of that, parents usually push their children to be successful in life. Their dream for me for since I was very young was that I would become a medical doctor. You see, when my family came to the U.S., I was I'm, I'm the youngest of three. I started in fifth grade, so I had the most opportunity for the most education in the U.S. And so their hope was on me, and it was my responsibility. So therefore, the pressure that was on me was very heavy. In the apartment complex where we were, there were a group of students from Weimar. And in the evening, they would invite the children 
in that apartment uh, complex to come to their place and to teach them pianos and guitars and music, uh, help them with their homework, different things like that. And I happened to be one of those boys that attended their meetings. And on Friday nights, they would hold a, a Bible study. It was through this Bible study group that I found Jesus and eventually was baptized. Pursuing medical was not a bad thing. It was something that I myself always wanted to be, something that my parents wanted me to be. But the problem is that came in contradiction with what God wants me to be. When I told my parents that I was going to become a pastor, they didn't take it lightly, especially my mom. She refuses to talk to me for the rest of that week. And she just said, I am very disappointed. I wish I'd never given birth to you. Me becoming a Christian was hard enough for my family because the community looked down on us, looked down on my parents. And so for me to become a pastor, it's, it's 10 times worse. It's like betraying your family, betraying your religion, betraying who you are as a Laotian person. I think it was especially hard for my mother to hear all these ridicules from the family because it was like she failed in raising the, the child, her youngest child. And I believe that's part of the reason why she had so much pressure on her to, to stop me from becoming a pastor. The day that I had to leave to go to Weimar to register, my mother came back into the room one more time. She opened the door, she saw my suitcase ready to go, and she realized that I am going, regardless of what she said. She didn't say anything though, she shut the door, she went out, I sat there for a while, then I got my suitcase, and I walked out to the living room. Then I decided to go back to my mother's room. She was laying face down. I wasn't sure what's, what was going on. And I sat by her feet and I said, Mom, thank you for being my mom for the past 18 years. And even though you don't want me as a son, I just wanted you to know that you'll always be my mom. And as I was about to get up and leave, she got up and she threw herself, her arms around me so tightly. And at that moment, she began to shake and she vomited. And I thought, what was, what was going on? Then I realized that there was a bottle, a couple of bottles of her medication, empty, and some pills laying on the bed, partly on the floor. Then it dawned on me that a few days ago, she told me that she would kill herself if I didn't listen, if I disobey, if I would be a stubborn son like the way I am to her that she would kill herself. But I didn't take it seriously. So I ran out of the room. I yelled to my sister, who was on, in the other room. She came out. And my brother-in-law came out. They took her into the car and rushed her to the hospital. Then I said, wow, I am killing my mom. I went to every clinic and hospitals I could think of. So I drove around looking for my mom. I couldn't find her anywhere. Finally, it must have been about midnight. I came back home, sat on the couch. My sister came back. 
She told me that my mother was in the psychiatric hospital in downtown Sacramento. And she told it to me. By this time, it was the morning. So I got into my car. I left. I went to Mi'kmaq College. After registration, I decided to go back to Sacramento to try to visit my mother. When I got to the hospital, everybody was there. My aunts and uncles and cousins. All my relatives pretty much were there. So when I walked into the room, it was like walking into the freezer. It was cold. All the eyes were on me. I think my whole family was upset at me. What I did was, to them, unforgivable, unpardonable sin, really. <laughs> But like now, but okay, I'm happy. I don't want to die no more. <laughs> so what she said? Do you know how to um, make it bigger? No, I just wanted to um, see that. While you're doing that, what she was saying was, she said, I didn't know what it was like to die. I didn't know if it would be good or bad, but I thought at least um, I won't have to deal with this. <laughs> Well, that's Pastor Sang, and he is now pastoring a church he helped plant in Holland, Michigan. And uh, thanks to the conference and uh, privilege of partnering, he also coordinates the work among the Lao language group across the North American division. So every child is so important. <laughs> so like... And like someone said, if when you take the hand of a child, you take you take a child by the hand, you take the parent by the heart. And for this one, it took a while. <laughs> it was a rocky road, but she is so glad. She is his one of his best supporters. She helps him in any way that she can, and um, and he is able to. He has a media ministry that is on Lao cable TV across North America. And when he sometimes, yes? Uh, Fang or Sean is his American name. His, actually his, his given name is Sang Tong, which means, Sang is light, Tong is gold. So his name is Golden Light. And his last name is Sang Tip. Eternal light. Golden light, eternal light. I think God must have inspired his parents. His father was a, yeah, his father was a chief of a village and a singer. And so he has written songs in his language, beautiful songs appealing to his language group to come to God. The list that I gave you is a list of church planting consultants. So for these language groups, his... Okay, his name is right here at the bottom on the left. And each of these is the most qualified church planter for that language group. So if you run into someone who speaks any of these languages and you need materials or ideas on how to reach them, these are the people to call. Well, thank you all for coming. We have one minute left. Any questions? <laughs> Let's pray, shall we?
Dear Father in heaven, thank you for how you have chosen the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. Thank you, Lord, that people that we would, might be tempted to overlook are your chosen people, and by your grace and strength, you can, you can help them to share your, your truth and your love with their language groups in ways that we could never imagine. So, Father, I pray that you be with each church planting consultant, each refugee church planter. Please be with each of us here. Please show us our part in helping the gospel to go to the world in this generation. Thank you for the privilege of having a part. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2023 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.